So embrace your mistakes. You're not failing at travel. You can't fail at travel. You can only learn from travel and learn from the mistakes that you make. And in a way, those mistakes are going to give you more memorable experiences than if you hadn't. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode is entitled 20 Lessons Learned from 20 Years as a Travel Writer, and it features audio from my keynote speech at TravelCon in Austin a couple years ago. TravelCon, as you may know, is the annual travel media conference run by Matt Kepnes, who I interviewed on this podcast in episodes 67 and 68. This year's conference was supposed to be in New Orleans back in May, but the COVID-19 pandemic meant it was rescheduled for right now, that is September of 2020. But since the pandemic is still making travel tricky, this episode might have to stand in as a virtual teaser for TravelCon, since as of now, the New Orleans TravelCon has been shifted to next April, that is April of 2021. More info on that can be found at TravelCon.org or in my show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. The speech you'll hear in this episode was done in tandem with a PowerPoint, though you don't really need the images to appreciate it. If by chance you want to see pictures of, say, me in a mullet in high school, or me dancing in a carnival samba school in Rio, or the Mercy Tribeswomen of Ethiopia, just check out the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate, where you can also find a list of all 20 lessons I learned in my 20 years as a travel writer. This episode is sponsored by Tortuga, which designs backpacks and backpack accessories for the vagabonding traveler. You know, I've gotten some great feedback about Tortuga in recent months from Deviate listeners who use my promo code to order bags of their own. Keep in mind the 10% discount is now automatic. No promo code needed. Just go to rolfpots.com Tortuga, and if you see a bag you like, the discount is automatic at checkout. All right, here's my 20 lessons learned from 20 years as a travel writer talk as delivered at TravelCon a couple years ago. It starts with nomadic Matt Kepnes introducing me and explaining how he got to know me and my work. Let's listen in. All right. So with that all said, uh, I would like to introduce you to our last, but maybe best. No, I mean, the rest were really good. Sorry, Ralph. You have, you have big shoes to fill. Uh, keynote speaker, Ralph Potts. Uh, he is the author of the book, Vagabonding. Uh, Marco Polo didn't go there. And you have a third one? Souvenir. Souvenir that just came out. I'm going to still intro you. <laughs> All right, well, we'll do this together. Uh, I read his book uh, when I started planning my trip around the world in 2005, and it was hugely inspirational to me. Who has read Vagabonding? All right, great, great. And uh, I actually reread it when it came out in the 10th anniversary a few years ago, uh, five years ago now. Cool. Two years ago. Two actually. years ago, yeah. So two years ago, I was right. And he's been hugely inspirational to me, and it's really nice to be able to call him a friend because, you know, you read the book, and you're like, ah, oh, this, this guy is awesome. And then next thing you know, you're having beers with him years later. So start a blog, Meet Your Heroes. Uh, and with that, Ralph Potts. Thanks, Matt. Can you hear me okay? Can everybody hear me? Okay. Uh, when Matt first uh, told me that um, he was inviting me to do a keynote, uh, he asked for possible ideas. And I said, well, maybe I'll talk about uh, traveling as a writer and what goes into that. And then I started looking at calendars, and I realized that I've been doing this for 20 years. I got my first byline 20 years ago in April, and I quit my job teaching in South Korea 20 years ago, November. So I'm going to give a talk called um, 20 Lessons Learned from 20 Years as a Travel Writer. 
Um, a lot of you know me for this book, Vagabonding. That's how Matt knows me. Uh, and so let's look a little bit about how this journey, before I get into my advice, how my journey began. Uh, is there anybody here from Kansas? Yes. Okay, Kansas people find me. I love to talk to Kansas travelers. I started out in the, the most landlocked state in the United States. This is me at about seven years old. I remember going to Lake Michigan in, in, in Illinois and not really at age seven and not really being sure if I would ever see an ocean. So I got a little clamshell and hoped that one day I would see an ocean. Uh, and at age 15, I did. By that time, I had grown a very fashionable uh, hair, haircut. <laughs> Known as the Mullen, and if you're triggered by late 80s fashion, um, you might want to leave the room for this. <laughs> if there's anybody who is destined not to travel the world, it's probably the kid with the feathery mullet and the Cosby Show sweater <laughs> from Wichita North in 1989. But he dreamed of travel, right? Uh, and I think I was living in Kansas, a place I liked, in an America where, where um, <clears throat> Not a lot of people were encouraging you to travel. The idea was that you work your whole life and then you earn your time to travel. But I had a Kansas farmer grandfather who was retiring about that time. And when he was retiring, my grandma got Alzheimer's disease. He had worked his whole life. He had earned his retirement. Life didn't give him free time at the end of life. And so I decided when I was young to travel America. Um, this was before hashtag van life. This was in 1994. <laughs> it's a 1985 Volkswagen Vanagon. Um, which I kitted out to drive around. I slept in this and in youth hostels for eight months and had an amazing time. I think your first vagabonding journey is unparalleled. I, I say sometimes you can only travel America when you're 23, year old, 23 years old once. And um, I've been around the world ever since, but nothing was quite like it. And after living in a van for eight months, I decided to try and write a book about it. And so I started this, Pilgrims in a Sliding World, which was a failure, but my first pre-lesson lesson is that failure teaches you everything. So my first try as a travel writer was a year and a half of bashing my head against a book that went nowhere. But I learned all my important lessons about writing by writing a book that didn't go anywhere. I also ran out of money, so I went to Korea to teach English. Um, these are my second graders. These, these kids are probably grown up and married by now. Um, but what traveling internationally taught me was that you can intellectualize a foreign country all you want, you can read about it, but being there and experiencing it at a gut level is something that you can't do unless you're there and in person. So I lived for two years in South Korea and it really was an important chapter in my vagabonding life. It's also where I got my first byline. Um, one chapter from that failed book, a, a chapter about Las Vegas, um, was my first byline in Salon Magazine in April of 1998. So it's been a 20 year anniversary for that. And I started traveling the world, off to Asia. And this is my first, this is what rolfpotts.com looked like in 1998. Very 1990s looking author website. <laughs> and this is what my travel writer life looked like in 1999. And it actually doesn't look that much different now, to be quite <laughs> honest. <laughs> there was a lot of $5 a night hotel rooms in Southeast Asia at the front end of my travel writing career. We started almost exactly 20 years ago. So here we go, 20 lessons from 20 years as a travel writer. Lesson number one, relationships count more than platforms. I don't know if you remember salon.com back in 1999, 2000. It was sort of seen as this hip New Yorker for the internet type magazine. Um, and it had some really great writers and I was really lucky to be writing for them. And I was really lucky to have a great editor. This guy, does anybody know him? Don George. Um, and he sort of became a mentor to me and I learned um, in keeping with this first bit of advice, that platforms and venues change 
like Salon is now sort of a clickbait factory. I am not officially breaking up with my penis, but somebody is. <laughs> Salon.com is not the magazine it used to be, but my relationship with my mentor editor is, right? So venues change. There might be media 10 years from now that hasn't been existed yet, which is how people tell tra travel stories in 10 years. Don't worry about that. Cultivate relationships. That's number one. Number two, distinctive content counts for more than self-promotion. When I was writing for Salon, I got a lot of emails asking me all sorts of questions. One was, how do you travel so long? Are you rich? What's going on? And I wasn't really sure how to answer because um, it wasn't really a pragmatic reason that had enabled me. I'd made a little bit of money in Korea, but it was more of a philosophical reason. So I put these philosophical reasons, I called it the vagabonding suggestifesto. I didn't want to call it a manifesto. It felt, that felt too heavy-handed. I was just offering suggestions that had worked for me. And um, those 10 points, starting with declare your independence and keep it simple, that I put on my website, eventually became my book Vagabonding. Um, and I think it wasn't my connections, really, that, that gave me this book, but it was the idea that I was trying to write true to myself. I was trying to find a new vision to write about it. And it actually wasn't a big literary agent who got me my, um, uh, my book contract at Random House. It was my high school history teacher from Wichita North who had another former his student in his history class who was an editor at Random House. So it went back through Kansas before it became a book. And then this book, which has been out for 15 um, years now, has, has done me quite well. If in doubt, number three, if in doubt, ask for help. Another common question I got when I was writing for Salon, I became a columnist for them in, in 1999, was how do you become a travel writer? Well, I didn't know because I only knew how I became a travel writer. And I started interviewing one travel writer a month with 10 basic questions just to help answer this question. Uh, Elliot Hester, he wrote for Salon as well, so did Tanya Schaefer. Eventually I met more and more travel writers and as of this year, we've been, I've been doing this for 18 years. Um, and there could be like 10 or 20 people uh, here at TravelCon who've been interviewed by me over the course of those years. One nice thing about asking for help is that you get to talk to your travel writing heroes. Um, so I interviewed Pico Iyer, if you know his work, Tim Cahill, if you know his work, and Eddie Harris. And Eddie became a friend, and he's visited me in Kansas now. So Eddie, who wrote a couple of great books, Mississippi Solo and Native Stranger in the 1990s, now lives in France. But he's a Midwesterner like me. He's from St. Louis, and so when he came uh, back to the Midwest, we hung out and went fishing. And so asking for help has sort of created a network of people with similar interests who take an interest in my work. And so when Eddie and Pico and Tim said yes, it inspired me to say yes when people asked me for their perspective, including this guy, Nomadic Matt, you may have heard of him, approached me for an interview in 2009, and I said, sure. And so that was some of the early content for his travel blog. Uh, other people, like uh, Eva Holland, I had a blog of my own. She said, I noticed you're not posting as much as you were before. Would you like somebody to write for you? I said, sure. Does anybody know Eva's byline? She writes for Outside and, and Pacific Standard and is, now is a, is a terrific journalist. Of course, I eventually met Matt in person in New York, and here I am. So there's this interconnection uh, that happens when you ask people that you look up to to help you, and then you realize that sometimes people are going to ask you for help. Does anybody, has anybody heard of Tim Ferriss? In, 2000, in 2005, he sent me an email and said, hey, I love your book. Uh, can we get on the phone? I want to write a book called The 4-Hour Workweek. And so we talked to him. And now um, probably more copies of Vagabonding are sold because of him than from my own efforts. <laughs> uh, and and num number five is there's always more to learn. No matter, where, no matter how comfortable you are as a travel writer, there's always new skills to learn. Uh, I was one of the first sort of dial-up era uh, internet travel writers. Before me, people got their break-in through print. But I've had to learn new skills. Um, 
I went around the world with no luggage about eight years ago, and I did a video blog and a blog, and that was new to me. Uh, recently, I got into uh, podcasting. And uh, actually, this one, the Trans-Siberian episode just came out this week. So it's rolfpots.com slash deviate if you're interested in taking the Trans-Siberian train. Um, I also interview um, like musicians, and it's sort of my midlife crisis project. And I'm not making much money off of my podcast, but I'm learning the medium, and it's become a part of my toolkit as a travel writer. Number six, don't postpone things. Uh, this definitely applies to travel. Uh, I think we can spend our whole life waiting for the right time to start traveling, waiting for the, whole, for the right time to start our travel writing career. Uh, but the time is never right. You have to create the time. And just like I never uh, saw the ocean until I was 15, I didn't have a passport until I was 25. Um, I don't have a, a copy of my original passport because I got drugged and robbed in Istanbul. So this is what I look like the next day. <laughs> so I was, I was 26 years old before I, I crossed a, a foreign border. Um, once I started traveling, things came together really quickly for me. So I think all of the reticence I had before then wasn't necessary. Although, on that same token, I don't think you can start traveling at any point in your life. You know, it's not age specific. It, it's not just for students or counterculture people. Anybody can start traveling at any time. A corollary to all this is I encourage people to become an expatriate at some point, to move overseas. It's one thing to be in the United States, to study other countries, to visit other countries, but to be in another culture as I was in South Korea for two years, and to just come up against those cultural differences, like the fact that we prize individualism in the United States, whereas in Korea it's seen as a little bit more of a betrayal of family and community. One great thing about teaching English in Korea was you get to make money. This is my first million. This is my first million won. I had a roommate who threw his million won on the bed and rolled around in it. <laughs> I funded two years of Asia travel with two years of studying in Korea. And in a way, my Korea experience was very much a part of that. And to this day, Korean food is my comfort food. It wasn't always easy. Korea is sort of a workaholic place. It can be cold in the winter and really hot in the summer. But I learned so many important lessons there. I also realized how close I was to regional travel. And so while I was living in Korea, I went to places like Japan or like this, the Philippines. So if you have a chance, under any circumstances, being teachers or whatever, try and find a way to be an expatriate. Peace Corps is a great example. Take it slow. Um, the term bucket list wasn't really in common parlance when uh, vagabonding first came out. It is now, and it's a great phrase, but oftentimes it insinuates that it's this list of things that needs to be ticked off. So use your bucket list as a metaphor, but when you're on the road, remember to slow down, because travel is not about what you're ticking off, but what you're slowly experiencing. Uh, this, is, this, this picture actually contains both the worst bed and the best mangoes of my travel experience, <laughs> probably ever. Uh, it's a riverboat that goes between Bagan and, uh, and Yangon, and um, it's very slow. It's not very fast, but I met so many uh, Burmese people on that boat and just had a different experience than if I had been optimizing my trip for efficiency and trying to go fast. Um, sometimes the best way to slow yourself down and as part of this, slowing down doesn't just mean walking, although I'm going to talk about walking in a second. It just means staying for weeks or months in a place instead of a few days in a place. It means sort of following your instincts instead of following your itinerary. And even if you have a micromanaged itinerary, it's having the confidence to just let it go and let the trip take you because you're always smarter a few days into a trip than for all the research you did before you started. Um, and so one way to literally slow down is to walk. This is me in Iceland last summer. Uh, I walked across, well, I walked halfway across Israel once. I wanted to walk across Israel Jesus style, but man, it was hot. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what Jesus did. I started hitchhiking. I don't know what he did. 
I tried to get from Capernaum to Jerusalem, but I didn't quite make it. But I learned a lot. Again, in the process, it slowed me down. Experiencing a country on foot is going to be different than experiencing it on a bicycle or on a bus or in an air-conditioned car. Not to knock any of them. Speaking of air-conditioned cars, it's okay to make mistakes, right? Um, there's this idea of travel experts, and you've heard from a lot of them this time, but one thing about travel is that you're always going to new places, and that you're always going to be making a fool of yourself or making mistakes, and sometimes you're going to go to Namibia's skeleton coast and rent a Kia instead of a four-wheel drive, <laughs> as, I did, as I did two years ago. So this is my Kia down at Terrace Bay. Has anybody been on the skeleton coast? Yeah, I got all the way down to Terrace Bay. Fortunately, they had a service station there. Uh, and so embrace your mistakes. You're not failing at travel. You can't fail at travel. You can only learn from travel and learn from the mistakes that you make. And in a way, those mistakes are going to give you more memorable experiences than if you hadn't. When I was on my no baggage trip around the world, I took the ferry from Spain to Tangier. And there was a bunch of taxi drivers there. And I wanted to go to Chefchaouen in Morocco, the, the beautiful blue town. Except I'd only read the name. I didn't know how to pronounce it. it to me, it looked like Chefchuen. So the taxi driver said, where do you want to go? I said, Chefchuen. And he said, Tetuan? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and so I go at this town. Have you ever tried to hike through a town using a map for another town? <laughs> you should try it sometime. It's actually, it's actually really interesting. It's sort of, sort of a psychogeographic challenge. But what happened is that Tetuan was not Chefchaouen. But it was actually a really interesting place. It was market day. All the Berber uh, tribes people had come into the town to sell their wares. And I made the decision to say, OK, I messed up. I'm just going to stay in Tetuan. And it was a great time. I went to Chefchaouen the next day. Chefchaouen was fine, but Chefchaouen is a little bit more geared towards people like me, geared towards tourists who are there to see the be beautiful blue walls. I had a more authentically Moroccan experience just because I screwed up and stayed there while I was in Morocco. Number 10, don't set limits. Who can guess where this picture is from? This is from Cuba. I went, I went to learn salsa dancing. I met this cool kid, Marcel, who, uh, who had just graduated from the University of Havana. And he tried to get me a salsa teacher, but he was busy because he had to, kept having to go to bagpipe lessons at the Asturian Federation. And if you know Spain, there's two, there's two Celtic parts of Spain, Galicia and, and Asturia. And so finally, I, just, I was not a very good salsa dancer. So I, I hung out with Marcel and learned how to play the Asturian bagpipes. And uh, so I didn't set limits on what was or was not acceptable to do in Cuba. And in a weird way, playing bagpipes is just as Cuba as uh, you know, dancing son or something, because people from those parts of Spain settled in Cuba in the 19th century. And these bagpipes are part of a certain Cuban traditions. Uh, another thing, as far as don't set limits, sometimes you can watch the, uh, the samba parade, for example, in Rio. And sometimes you can be in it. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have done this before. But they actually sell tickets to foreigners. The, 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 um, the Samba schools come out of the favelas. They come out of the poorest part of the city. So one way that they fund the Samba schools is to sell costumes to foreigners. And then they, they have a float with a bunch of really good-looking Brazilian men on this float and a good, bunch of really good-looking Brazilian women on this float. And there's like a drunk foreigner section in the middle <laughs> of like people who can't. <laughs> My Samba wasn't very good, but it was a perspective on the Samba school parades in, in Rio that is like no other. So give your permission, uh, self-permission to, uh, to break the rules and go do more than sightsee when you see. Corollary of that is walk until your day becomes interesting. Sometimes you don't need a goal for the day. Sometimes just walking out on two feet and seeing things is your window into a place. Um, and sometimes it's scenery. This isn't a very good example. This is Machu Picchu. Um, obviously, I didn't stumble upon Machu Picchu, right? <laughs> but, but I was in Santa Fe recently, and I did some walking. I'm, I'm a runner. I did some running as well. And I just, it just sort of, 
accidentally discovering how beautiful Santa Fe can be was more exciting than, than going to a pre-described place. Um, another thing that happens when you walk, when your day becomes interesting in the Falklands, interesting means uh, Gen 2 penguins. Has anybody hung out with Gen 2 penguins? They smell really bad, don't they? Yeah, penguins are cute and just they smell terrible, just so you know, if you ever travel. But usually if you walk until your day becomes interesting, especially in a part of the world where you're obviously not from there, you end up meeting people. Uh, and people are probably the most important part of any journey, despite what you planned on finding. If you walk until your day becomes interesting, you're going to meet people that you hadn't planned on meeting. These are some monks in Pukoku, Myanmar. I'd actually been, I bought a Chinese, I like, bought, I'm pretty tall, so I bought the biggest Chinese one-speed in Myanmar and tried to ride it down the Irrawaddy Valley, and I quit in Pukoku, but I met these guys. Uh, so number 12, that's, this is a big one. Meet people. Seek to meet people. Um, and the big travel writer rule is if you're writing a story and you're including local people, and the only local people in your story are taxi drivers and bartenders, then you should probably try to travel a little harder, right? Um, try to travel beyond the, that initial level of the service industry and meet people who can tell stories. These are a bunch of uh, Sudanese people I met in Damascus. And this was a perfect walk until your day becomes interesting story. I was walking through the streets of Damascus, this was about 18 years ago, and I heard this beautiful American gospel music coming from a church. And I just sort of followed the sound of the music. And I went in and there were Sudanese refugees there. And they invited me to join them in their church and I hung out with them for a while. Uh, and in retrospect, it's so interesting that like, the world has had this giant argument about taking in Syrian refugees now. Well, when I was in Syria, they had taken in Sudanese refugees. And the, the, the Christians and the Muslims from Sudan lived on the same street and had no problem with each other. You know, the problem was, was back home. They were just in it together. And so I wouldn't have found that had I not just followed a gospel song to a church. Um, I'm not very good at languages. I know some of you probably are. I'm terrible at languages. I've been around the world. If I drink a bottle of soju, my Korean gets a lot better. But one thing about uh, meeting people is that often you're given a forgiveness in advance. If you're not from there, you just speak in the simplest terms. You use a smile, which is a pretty international form of communication. And what I end up doing is hanging out with kids, because kids don't care what your vocabulary is like. They just want to run around and have fun, right? So this is a picture from Cambodia. Um, when I was, I was actually taking a train to Angkor Wat, and a Cambodian guy who was doing manual labor in, Tha in Thailand said, hey, come to my village. So I hung out, hung out in his village for a few days, understood nothing had a great time. And as a side note to that, uh, volleyball is really big in Southeast Asia. Have you guys seen? There's Takra, but there's also volleyball. I was the tallest guy by a head and a half in, in Cambodia, and I just I got my ass handed to me. They just destroyed me in volleyball. Sports is another good window into a place. All right, 13. So this is the core task of travel writing, really. Report back on the human world. Because when we watch news media, where do we get our information about the rest of the world? Well. When we see other countries, you, it's usually stuff that's blowing up, right? It's bad news. It's the, it's, the, it's the man bites dog stories from the other sides of the world. Oftentimes in mass media, when we see pictures of other countries that aren't involved with alarmist violence, uh, it's these uh, platonic fantasies of movies and advertising and now Instagram, right? Um, it's sometimes uh, uh, travel photographers used to call it the neutron bomb shot, the perfect picture with nothing in it, like the neutron bomb kills the people and keeps the scenery. Um, those are platonic fantasies. So travel writing is that middle ground that allows us to humanize the world in a way that we don't usually see in the media. It, 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 we can tell stories about everyday people and uh, for a way that the home audience can appreciate. Corollary to this is try something different 
I spent a lot of time in Thailand before I realized that Thai people's vacations are not always exactly the same way that American and Canadian people's vacations are. In Northeast Thailand, they have a place called Pensuk, which is a cowboy ranch. Now, I grew up in Kansas, and we have Cowtown. We have an old historical ranch. But watching Thai people sort of embrace a movie vision of what it's like to be American was sort of an interesting way. I was the only non-Thai tourist at Pensuk Cowboy Ranch. And it was a new perspective on place, and it helped me appreciate these middle-class Thai tourists who have ambitions that might be different than American, uh, middle-class American tourists. Also, as a teacher, one way to get past um, the normal sightseeing vibe of a place is to volunteer. And you don't need, there's volu travel volunteer organizations, but sometimes it's as simple as just going into a village and volunteering the skills you have. And so when I'm traveling long term in developing countries or anywhere really, I'll go to the local high school and volunteer myself as a native English speaker. Uh, and in a place like Pukoku, Burma, it was, it's like being a celebrity. You know, they've been studying English, studying English, and here's a native English speaker to come in and help them learn a little bit. And Basically, I spent a day with them, became friendly with them, and they invited me to their pway that night. It's a Burmese festival. It happens at the, at the Burmese pagoda. There's monks and there's families. And on this particular night, there was drag cabaret. <laughs> Never would have seen Burmese drag cabaret had I not volunteered as a teacher. Um, and yeah, and, and it was, I mean, we're, we're, we're still having this weird conversation in the United States about trans identity and stuff. In Myanmar, for 20 years, it's no big deal. I turn to my students, like, is that what I think it is? Says, yeah, yeah, it's, it's gay play, you know, it's, it's a drag show. And so um, it, it's interesting to be surprised sometime. This isn't in the Lonely Planet, right? This sort of event is not in the Lonely Planet. I learned about this because I volunteered as a teacher for today. It was just another lens into a place. Now, you can plan. Um, travel experiences just by being a student, going up and signing for a cooking class, uh, or signing up for a martial arts class, or jumping in the local soccer game. Uh, it's another good window, not just to experience a place, but to experience a place as a writer, to find a lens through which to write about a place. Uh, when I was in the Dominican Republic, I was in a Spanish class with a bunch of Americans, including my, my friend Stephanie here. And um, uh, we all decided we were gonna learn how to not just speak Spanish, which we weren't doing very well, but learn uh, bachata and merengue, which we also didn't do very well. But going out to those clubs and dancing, um, she's from, uh, actually not Stephanie, Gen Jennifer, is from Washington, D.C. And her education was like fivefold because she was learning Spanish and she was learning bachata and merengue. But she also saw the Dominican beauty parlors and how they did the hair just a little bit differently than she did back home. She went back home and started a, a, her own Dominican-style beauty parlor in D.C. And so that's one way to monetize travel, I guess. You can be a blogger and advertise, or you can find some sort of special cultural thing, take it back home, and start your own business. This next one is a big one. Number 16, dare to be lonely, lost, and bored. This used to be the bread and butter of being a travel writer. You were in some place far away from home. There was no way to call your mom. There was nothing to read. And there was no current map. Uh, and now we have this. This is a photo illustration. I took it of myself yesterday. We have these little devices now that solve that problem of being lonely, lost, and bored. And sometimes if it's a weird sensation now where we're in an exciting place, but something doesn't quite feel right. We feel connected to home in a way that feels strange. And I call it the electronic umbilical cord. And so if you want to throw a little challenge in front of yourself and really make yourself feel where you are and find some stories that you wouldn't have found otherwise, unplug. It's worth a try. You don't have to do it full time, but unplug, put that phone away, leave it in the hostel or the hotel. 
Don't worry about the map. Just wander in the street and see what you find. Uh, don't worry about who you're going to meet. Just be lonely enough until you strike up a conversation with somebody else. Um, and be bored enough that you don't have to have your Kindle with you. You can just find your stimulation from the things around you. It, this is really something that's changed in the 20 years since I've done this because of this device we have in our pockets, and I'm as guilty as anyone as putting the phone in front of me and, and the experience. If you take it away from you and the experience, it's a way to experience things in a whole new way. 17, remember that there is an ethical dynamic to travel. We're always guests in other cultures. We're also from a very wealthy country, so it's good to keep in mind the dynamic in which we travel. Uh, where is this place? Who can tell me where this is? Uluru. So, um, it's in the center of Australia. It's sort of one of the symbols of Australia. And um, the Pichinjara Aboriginal people live there. They consider the place sacred. And so they put up a sign that says, don't climb, don't climb Uluru. It's our sacred place. We don't go to Jerusalem and climb the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. We don't climb around on things in Mecca. Don't climb, please, don't climb here. And then right behind the sign, what do you see? A, a path up to the top of Uluru, maintained by the same National Park Service that... that um, that put up the sign for the Aboriginal people. So everywhere we go, we, we are part of not just a economic dynamic, not just a commercial dynamic of travel, not just an experiential dynamic tra of travel, but an ethical dynamic of travel too. And it's good to keep that in mind. It's good to keep in mind that we're gazing on the world as Americans or Canadians or Danes or wherever we're from in here. And, and, and keep in mind that our point of view is very specific. It doesn't mean we have to apologize for being who we are, but we sort of have to turn the lens back on ourselves and think about what sorts of privileges we're bringing to a place and how that affects the guest and host dynamic. Sometimes the very act of tourism itself can be part of a very complicated ethical dynamic, such as in the Mercy region of southwestern Ethiopia. Has anybody been to the Omo Valley? Um, it's a fascinating place. It's a place that has been isolated for years geographically, and tourism didn't really come there until the 1990s. But this was about 10 years ago. So uh, this beautiful young 14-year-old girl at the time was about to start a process that would end up, a beautification process in the Mercy tribe that would end up with her looking like this. Lower lip is severed and stretched with wood and later with clay plates. Um, for part of a very historically complicated beautification ritual in southwestern Ethiopia, and then when you're not wearing your ornamental um, gear as a mercy woman, you look like this. It's part of this weird conversation we have right now about um, insiders and outsiders and the decisions people make as a community, because at a certain, at a certain point you would think, well, maybe, maybe the mercy women shouldn't mutilate their women. You know, maybe they should quit some traditions that are tied to isolation and uh, change their ways, and that's a good thing and ideas are coming into parts of the world like that. But as it happens in the Omo Valley, there is a photograph economy. And so every picture I took here costs about a dollar. And the way to make more money if you live in the Omo Valley is to look as extreme as possible. Uh, um, anthropologists have a word for this. It's called uh, staged authenticity. So that basically when people are sitting in the village in their daily life, they might be dressed in t-shirts and sneakers, but when they see the tourist bus come, they put on their war paint take out their traditional clothes. The women, if they've been subject to this, put in their clay plates because Americans don't want pictures of Omo people wearing sneakers and Nike shirts. They want Omo people looking traditional. To an extent, it's almost as if we've lost our certain connection to tradition. And so we go to other countries um, to seek an idea of tradition. What happens is that we forget that tradition is always a work in progress, that change is always a part of any society. So again, just keep in mind the ethical dynamic of any place that you travel to. 18, 
uh, develop a notion of home. This is a picture of me in Renong, Thailand when I was writing Vagabonding. Um, besides Korea, it was probably the most time I ever spent in any one place in Asia during my travels. I was moving around quite a bit. I think it took me about eight months to write the book. This cost about $100 a month. It was a little residency hotel. The food was great. It cost about a dollar, a dollar a meal. Uh, and so I was living for next to nothing, and I really enjoyed that. And I think when I first started traveling, I took a lot of pride in not having a home, in, in wandering the earth and being a full-on vagabond. But I think it's rare that anybody can be that way their whole life. Over time, I came to desire a more rooted sense of place. In fact, after I wrote the book, I went back to America, I went on tour, I promoted the book, and then I wanted to feel at home someplace, so I went back to this place in Thailand and hung out for a few more months. And I think what I realized is that I wanted some rootedness in my life, and that um, travel, if you can make it an active part of your life, isn't necessarily in opposition to home, but it is in tandem with home, and a sense of home can actually enhance your sense for travel. So. I went full circle. I bought some land in Kansas. This is in north central Kansas, um, which is very cheap. The cost of living is very cheap, and I'm close to my family when I'm in Kansas. And so I'm probably only there two to four or five months a year, but um, it gives me a place to go back to, and it, and it makes my travels uh, feel special. Almost done. 19, success is a matter of doing it long enough. Uh, and I've seen this. There was a time when I was the person writing to Eddie Harris and Pico Iyer and Tim Cahill asking to interview them. Uh, over time, uh, more people approached me to ask me for my advice, and I've seen people go through the process of this success. This is me on my first Condé Nast Traveler assignment in Laos in, uh, when was that, 2000? I think I got malaria on this assignment. <laughs> um, but it's changed. Uh, over time, I put in my time and this is the Margaret Mead Film Festival for a film called Gringo Trails. Uh, and I've seen so many people do it. People who were asking me really naive questions 10 years ago uh, are now speakers at places like this. They're making good money. They're getting a good byline. And one thing that I always say about travel writing as a pursuit is that if you write for years and years and don't get anything published, or if you only get a handful of bylines, or if you don't meet those goals you put on your line, on your wall, congratulations, you've traveled the world you've already done what most people dream of and don't do. So failure at travel writing is the best kind of failure, you know? Um, and really, the gift is the travel itself. Writing is the hard work. Uh, and writing and photography is a way of seeing and a way of paying attention. But really, regardless of what your goals are, if you focus on the travel, um, that's what it's all about. That's the thing that, that um, it might sound good to be a travel writer, but just being out in the world and engaging with the world is what matters. And that ties into this other idea, which is make the lessons last a lifetime. And I've talked to, I was signing books earlier, and a few people asked me, well, are you still vagabonding? And I mean, but like a dirtbag dirt vagabond. And they're like, yeah. Well, no. I mean, I don't travel like I did when I was 27 years old. And I don't know if it would have fit my personality to continue to be a dirtbag forever and ever until I dropped dead at age 96. Um, a few years ago, I was in Mozambique, and I rented a four-wheel drive. And my 27-year-old self would be very disappointed with 40-something uh, with Rolf, who drove a four-wheel drive around, around Mozambique, because he would have been on the chicken buses, and he would have been traveling a lot slower. But I think I just needed to treat myself. And because of the four-wheel drive, I saw parts of Mozambique I wouldn't have had. I missed the chicken bus parts of Mozambique that uh, I would have seen in my other way of travel. But just, it changes. Allow, allow travel to change as you do over the course of a lifetime. And I think the excitement of the early travel is hard to replicate. And when you feel yourself being a little antsy in what used to make you happy, then find something different. Slow down, go home, do some more work, save some money, and mix it up. 
and just make it make travel and the conversation with the world a part of the lifestyle lifestyle that you take to home. So um, this is me about 20 years ago, and now I get that was me walking. I don't know how that ended up as a cover photo image. It's sort of a weird cover image, but people like it. And now people send me pictures of of me um, as they're reading my book <laughs> in uh, in strange parts of the world. Uh, and so that's, that's what I've learned. Those are my 20 lessons. Uh, again, that's just my suggestifesto. They're not pres prescriptions, but those are the insights that I've got after having done this for 20 years. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Nomadic Matt's annual travel con and my full list of 20 lessons learned from 20 years of travel can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviateatrolfpots.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm -hmm.